0: If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We are in our sixth week in a series that we have entitled Etched in Stone, about the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament and what they mean for modern life. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about primarily our relationship with the Lord. Exodus 20, the first few uh, parts of the Ten Commandments are directed on our relationship with God and our relationship with with him alone. Now, the reality is that our relationship with the Lord impacts our lives in such a way that it ought to impact how we treat each other. And so the second six uh, commandments, the six after the first four, deal more directly with human relationships. And last week, we talked about honoring our mother and father, and we talked about in this room, that's sometimes been seen as a commandment that not many people have to worry about. We think, well, okay, we're past that age, but we uh, understood it in a little bit of a different way. Over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about some of the shortest commandments in Scripture. In fact, the three commandments that follow are actually in the book of Exodus, only two words each, the word no, and then the commandment. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about those words, and the one today simply is no murdering. Now, you think, well, good, if, if, if God was that to the point, it only took him two words, then Brother Lyle ought to be just as succinct, right, just as concise. Well, we're going to expand a little bit, all right? And so uh, the, the Ten Commandments start, and they start to flow, and you get to this one, and you think, well... All right, okay, I'm good. Not to sound like the rich young ruler, but you start ticking them off in your mind. Honoring your father and mother, good, I'm good with that one. No killing, well, I really hadn't done that lately, so I'm, uh, I'm all right with that. We're going to talk today about the fact that this commandment is for us all. And it is a very specific word. Now, look again in verse 13 of chapter 20. How many of you here have an NIV version? All right. How many of you here have a King James Version? How many of you here don't really know or care what version you have? All right. King James Version says, Thou shalt not kill. Okay. The New uh, International Version, or most modern translation, says, You shall not murder. All right. Those are two different words. Aren't they? Murder and kill are different words. And we're going to talk about in a minute why they're there. Let me tell you this that the King James interpreted that word correctly for when the King James was written. Okay? Anybody know when King James Bible was written? 1611, right? Anybody do quick math? How many years ago was that? A lot, right? A lot. 400 next year, okay? So, uh, it's been a long time. Well, when it, it used the word kill, in that day and time, Kill meant murder in a lot of ways. The word that is in the Hebrew is a very specific word. Now, in just a moment we're going to get there. But I want you to know that what's interesting about this particular commandment is that almost every culture that has ever existed has had a law about willfully taking someone else's life. It is the most agreed upon commandment. Now, let me say this. In how it is completely understood is not universally accepted. But in the basic premise that murder is bad, it's pretty universally accepted. The idea is that taking another's life is just something that societies want to forbid. And so what the question we have to ask is, okay, is that all there is to it? Or in a different way, the first question I want to answer today is, what does the Sixth Commandment say? And maybe even more importantly, what does it not say? All right? Two words, the word no and then murdering. People get confused with this commandment thinking it addresses all kinds of issues that it doesn't. The Hebrew language has eight different words for killing. Eight different words for killing. The word here used is radzak. All right? Don't you say that with me. Because you may need that tomorrow at your workplace, all right? Or when you're talking to your grandchildren on the phone, you may need to talk to them about radzak. All right? So say it with me. Radzak. Radzak. Okay? you got to make that. That last one's an H, but it kind of in your mouth, all right? It's allergy season. I know you can make that sound, all right? I made it lots this morning getting up, all right? So let's say ratzach. Ready? Ratzach, all right? That is a very specific word. In fact, it is a word that is only found in the Hebrew. It's an idea only found in the Hebrew language, and it is only used about 38 times that we can find. And so it's A word that is chosen specifically. Now, here's the thing. When it is used almost in those 38 times in the Old Testament, it is almost always used of an individual willfully and maliciously taking the life of another individual. It is almost always used of personal relationships. Now, why is that important? Because this commandment does not speak to two issues that people use it to speak to. It does not speak to war. People say, see, the sixth commandment says there shouldn't be any killing, so there shouldn't be any war. You know what the problem with that is? In this very book, God tells the nation to do what? Go to war and kill people. In this very book, God says you need to go to war. and So it doesn't mean a national referendum on war right here. Now, there are other places in Scripture that you can talk about it, and we must understand that war is never a good option. You've heard those things that you make a decision and you say it was the lesser of two evils. War is only an option when it is the best, worst solution. General Norman Schwarzkopf, you remember him, right? Desert Storm. Uh, In an interview that they had following that, they asked him some questions about war, and he said, listen, I don't ever want to serve with men who enjoy war. He said, because it is a brutal, terrible thing. We could have a whole sermon on whether war is justified ever or when, but it doesn't come from this verse of Scripture. So that's not at play here. Another thing that I don't think is at play here is the issue of the death penalty or capital punishment. One of the reasons I say that is because in this very book, just a couple of chapters later, what does God say to do to someone who commits several crimes. I mean, not just not just a person that has several, not three strikes and out. I mean, it's, in the Old Testament, it's one strike, you're out, right? You start with an O2 count in baseball terms. The idea is that in this very book, God will say, if you break this commandment or this law, death is the appropriate punishment. So I don't see how you can say this verse speaks to capital punishment not being right when just a few chapters later, capital punishment is instituted in their midst. Now, that's not to say that capital punishment is good or right. That's another day. That's another sermon. That's another topic. I'm just saying from this particular verse, you cannot argue those two things. That's what it doesn't mean. It deals with private morality. It deals with individuals. It doesn't address judicial killing, military killing. It addresses personal things. So what does it address? It's going to address four things, and I'll tell you in a moment what those are. But we have to remember again when these commandments are being given. For over 400 years, the Israelites had been captive in Egypt. And they have been captive in Egypt to the point where they saw their lives being treated as commodities as um, economic pursuant they were treated as a natural resource and if you as an individual were no longer pulling your weight you became disposable and as a result you had no value except what your value was to your master the egyptians And as they have been shown over and over and over again that the lives of them and the people that were around them were of little use except for what work could be done, they are going to be reminded by God very quickly that life is a precious thing. And what God wants them to realize is when he says no murdering, when he says no killing, when he says no taking of innocent life, no taking of anyone's life, on your own, by your own decision, is that their lives were important. Now I think in our modern day, there are four things that I know this speaks to not doing. And the first is no homicide. Alright? Now, Homicide is one of those words that's just become normal language for us. Um, It it is an epidemic in America, no matter what the numbers are. Numbers are down a little bit. I don't know if you know that or not, but in America, numbers are down a little bit on homicides, but they're still not really good. Um, They're still not acceptable. Uh, It still uh, should stop our heart when we turn on the television and news comes on of someone that's been shot and killed in our town and towns around us. But the thing is, we've become kind of used to that. I was thinking about some of the most popular shows on television right now. CSI, New York, Miami, Las Vegas, Akron, Friendship, Tennessee, whatever the latest. You know, Hohenwald, wouldn't that be great? CSI, Hohenwald. Um, how, how do those always start? With a crime, Right with a murdered victim. And we've sanitized it. So they almost always go from the murdered victim to a sanitary medical examiner room where they're just they're performing autopsies, having conversations over it. Right? These are the most popular shows on television. And what they have here is this idea that, oh, that's just a part of life. I mean, if if you follow television every week or three or four days a serial killers on the loose and it's just a natural part of life for cops to be investigating homicide. What's even more alarming is I, I saw the statistic this week and um, it, it just seems unbelievable but I guess it's not. I, I mean, at least people, I, I assume these people are doing good research. They say that by the time Eli finishes elementary school, he will have seen 8,000 televised murders and 100,000 acts of on-screen violence. Now, some of that's through television, movies. Some of that's through video games. But the point is that we've built a culture where homicide has become a natural part of what we are. Now, it's not new. When was the first homicide? CSI, Garden of Eden, right? Cain and Abel over an issue of worship. The first church fight led to a murder, all right? And I don't mean to minimize that, but I'm just pointing out that it's not a new phenomenon. It's been around for all time, right? Since the beginning of time, it's been around. In fact, the Bible is full of murders. One of the earliest homicides comes in Genesis 4. This is in Genesis 4 when Lamech announces what he's done. and Zillah, hear my voice. You wise of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And then listen to his bold arrogance in the face of God. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. People celebrated it even back then. The first thing that this verse encapsulates is obviously it's not okay to kill another human being. Now let me just say this. Scripture also suggests that self-defense is not included in this prohibition. Protecting your family is not included. But it ought to be a last line of defense. So the first thing it addresses here is homicide. Here's the Second thing it addresses, and it's suicide. Taking your own life. I can tell you that as a pastor, one of the most difficult funerals I have ever had to do was a suicide of a church member. Happened in a previous church. I had known the church member. I had talked with him. Didn't expect it. Didn't understand it. And standing in front of family and friends and explaining the unexplainable was absolutely terrifying, stressful. Now here's the thing about suicide. It is the ultimate act of selfishness. And we live in a culture that is getting progressively more thoughtful about it you look at statistics, it's amazing the number of our young people that have thought or will think about it. Not, not in a passing way, but in a planning out kind of way. And what we have to be sensitive to here is you think, well, I don't have a problem with that. That's something I would never do. We need to be sensitive to those around us who might be and being willing to go the extra mile to help people out. Now, let me say this. I don't believe that suicide is the ultimate deal breaker in your relationship with God either. I do not believe that if you are bought by the blood of Jesus, saved by His power, and for some reason in your life, your life ends that way, that that somehow annuls your relationship with God. It is a tragic, terrible, fatal sin. But it is not more powerful than the blood and the grace of Jesus Christ. So this is what I say. Homicide is included here. Suicide is included here. Here's the third thing that's that doesn't seem to be in the news as much lately, partly because people are just accepting of it more than they used to be. That's euthanasia. Euthanasia. You know what euthanasia is, right? You know what it's called. It's called... Mercy killing. It's not mercy killing that somebody else has described it is murder by remote control. It's commissioning someone else to take your life for you it is allowing someone else to do that. Uh, I saw there's been a movie made recently about uh, Dr. Jack Kravorkian who kind of made this popular in America. but it's not just America where this is an issue. In April 2001, Holland became the first country to legalize doctor-assisted suicide when the Dutch Senate legalized euthanasia. Here's the amazing thing. Only a generation earlier during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, five doctors refused to obey orders to let elderly or ill patients die without further treatment, and they were hailed as heroes. Nazis came in, occupied them, and they forced the older generations to be put to death. This is what one Dutch person said. It only took one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. Today, in the Netherlands, thousands of medical patients are killed every year. Actually, voluntary euthanasia has become involuntary. There are an increasing number of requests for death, not from the patient's but from family members who just desire to end the lives of their loved ones. Now here's the thing. That seems crass and it seems terrible, but it shows when you begin to take life flippantly, results come. Now let me also say this, because I know some of you have dealt and will deal and maybe are dealing with this. Allowing someone who is terribly ill to naturally pass away is not euthanasia. Amen? I mean, I think at times, and this is, I'm not speaking to any particular situation, I'm not speaking to anyone in general, uh, I mean in specific, I'm just saying in general. There are times when we try to prolong what has already been determined by God to happen. And so, euthanasia is not allowing someone to naturally go the way that God has intended them to go at the time He has intended. It is taking someone's life before it is time. There's a huge difference. Huge difference. In our family, just in the last few years, we've dealt with loved ones grandparents Susan's mom who had terrible illnesses and and had to make those very difficult decisions about um, uh, medical procedures and medical assistance and there were moments that we agreed but there were moments when we said no that's too much we know their eternal resting place it is time for them to go and wait for us and I know it's not an easy issue and I know it's not a cut and dry issue and every situation is different. But that's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is it's time to end their life before they're ready. So you've got homicide, you've got suicide, you've got euthanasia, and here's the last one. Abortion. Abortion is the murder of the most helpless members of our society. In America, since Roe v. Wade, there have been over, and this number is climbing, it's hard to get a accurate, but I know for sure there have been over 50 million babies aborted. J.I. Packer addresses it this way. He says, Genetic science now shows that the fetus is from the moment of conception a human being in the process of arriving. The fact that for several months it cannot survive outside the womb does not affect its right to the same protection that other human beings merit and that it will itself merit after birth. Legalizing abortion on grounds other than the safety of the mother is a social evil whatever arguments of convenience are invoked. Now, that's what you expect to hear from a Baptist preacher. But it doesn't make it any less true. We've got elections coming up and I'm not, you all have been with me long enough to know I don't talk about politics a lot, especially about issues or candidates and those kind of things, and it's not just because they tell me not to. It's because I, I believe that our job of the church is to be the church. It's not to be a governing organization. It is to be the church. But I can tell you this. I, I'm not a one-issue voter. You've heard that term. But I believe this issue is very important. And I believe that in America we have seen ramifications spiritually, physically, emotionally over the epidemic that is the abortion on demand that we have in this country. And I believe it ought to be a major consideration in the way that you cast your votes in upcoming elections now and until you no longer have elections hopefully means that you've passed away, right? For the rest of your life, it'll be a major poem. And we live in a country that has become desensitized to this issue because it just becomes a screaming match. Or who can bring up the most horrifying images when it goes to a much deeper core? What J.I. Packer references is this, is that the moment of conception... You have the DNA that is the process of determining who you are. Now, there are other factors once you're born. I mean, environment plays a role. Prayer plays a role. Who we are plays a role. The church plays a role. All that plays a role in who we become. But your genetic makeup does not change from that moment of conception. Isn't that an amazing thought? That in a single cell, that at the microscopic level is difficult to see, every bit of programming determining who you are already exists. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but in the last week or so, there have been lots of great electronic gadgets produced. And here's the thing about electronic gadgets today. Whatever you buy today is out of date today, right? It's gone. It's done. Now, can you imagine if the CEO of Microsoft or Hewlett-Packard or Google or Apple got up and said, we have created an electronic device that has the genetic structure within it that it will change and alter to its environment to accomplish all that you need it to accomplish for the next 70 years. It will need occasional checkups and maybe even an occasional surgery. But for the next 70 years, everything you need is already in place. They're not going to say it. Why? Because nobody has even come close to replicating the human cell at its inception, at its beginning. And whatever else you want to say about it, that miraculous cell is a human being ordained by God. And taking it in any way is wrong. Creating them to use them is wrong. I get emails. I am a diabetic. I don't know if y'all knew that or not. Some of you did. I know, because when I go through the line, you check on what I eat, right? There, I get emails from the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation wanting me to lobby my congressman for embryonic stem cell research because that is the pathway to a cure. And what I say is this. If my... Diabetes is only cured by the taking of embryonic cells. Then let me have diabetes till the day that I die. Amen? Because it's not that important to me. And I tell them that, but I don't think they listen to me. They have their own agenda. The point is, it's included. Now, it's not the only thing here. I mean, we need to be just as vigilant about homicide it's been a long time since I've seen pastors on the street protesting the homicides in our communities. We need to be just as vigilant about helping to prevent suicide. We need to be just as vigilant about helping to prevent euthanasia as we are rightfully about preventing abortion. It's part of it. Now, if that's all there was, this would be a pretty easy commandment. But guess what? There's more. Why do we know There's more. Because there was this guy that came along who happened to be the Son of God, Savior of the world, King of kings, Lord of lords, Messiah, Alpha and Omega, the one and only, the first and the last. And he said, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to to judgment, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the counter, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So what he says is, this isn't just about the physical act of taking a life. Have you ever had anger toward another human being? Have you ever heard insults, gossip, or name-calling? Is there anyone in your life right now that you have unreconciled with because you refuse to move through your anger forgiveness, to repentance. It's about being verbally abusive, angry in your heart, humiliating someone else, dehumanizing someone else. What Jesus says is, it's not just about the physical act, it's about the mental act. He says there is murdering in your heart and in your head, and it means having anger or being distraught or dehumanizing what someone else believes or who they are. Jesus says, if you look upon another person with anger or insult, you've committed murder in your heart, in your mind. C.S. Lewis writing about um, the commandments, especially this one, and adultery and some others, where Jesus says, well, if you even look at somebody that way, then you've committed. He says, it's almost like Jesus says, it's not about the physical act. It's almost like He says, if you look at ham and eggs with lust, you have committed breakfast in your heart. Right? That you've already eaten eaten it. See, we think it's an act that hasn't been committed till we act. Jesus says, once it's formed in your mind, it's as good as done. I'm not talking about a fleeting thought. I'm talking about that dwelling on kind of thought. And that's not the end. Because you see, each of these commandments intended to have a negative, but they also intended to have a positive. We'll talk next week about... You don't want to miss next week. Next week's going to be a great week. It's Halloween morning. We're not going to celebrate Halloween here. Is that okay? We're going to celebrate the Lord. We're going to celebrate what God has taught us. We're going to have the Lord's Supper here. We're going to have a great evening and afternoon of of telling other people about the love of Christ. And next Sunday morning, we're talking about adultery. All right? So it's going to be a packed service. All right? I don't know that there'll be a lot of people here. I'm just saying that we're going to put a lot in. But when he says you shall not commit adultery, the underlying positive consequence of that is you need to build strong and healthy marriages. Right? I mean, the reason you don't commit adultery is so that your marriages are strong and healthy, along with other reasons, but that's a major thing. Well, the positive connotation of this, you shall not kill, is this, is that life is precious and that we ought to do everything we can to make life meaningful and real, and good, and all that people need for it to be. In fact, there's that little verse in the New Testament that can trip us up sometimes that says, those that know what good to do and do not do it, sin. That do know what to do and they don't do it, you sin. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Good Samaritan comes by. Jesus is telling this as a, a poignant illustration, but there's a guy in the ditch. He's half dead, almost dead. And the Good Samaritan has every right to pass him by according to the customs that he lived by. But according to moral law, he knew it was his job to take care of him. Now, Jesus in that illustration gives two other people that walked on by, and he kind of condemns them. And then he points to this man who did all that he could to restore life as the model of what a neighbor should be. Now, let me tell you what that also means. You see, for us as believers, we realize that life is much more than a physical entity, that there is a spiritual nature to life. And in fact, the priority in life is the spiritual. And so when it says in here, you shall not murder, what it also implies is that we ought to be about making people's life as abundant and free as possible. And there is only one way that that happens, and it is through Jesus Christ saving the soul of the people on this planet. Now, what we have to understand is what this commandment, not just what it says and doesn't say, but what it means to us is this, that it reminds us that we are all made in the image of God. Every person on this planet is an image, barrier, image bearer and barrier in some ways. That was a Freudian slip, I guess. An image bearer for the God of the universe. Now, is it the same as God? No. Is it a little spark of God? No. It means that we have a special place in the created order in our relationship with God. Whatever else it means, it means that He desires a one-on-one relationship with you. And that your life is of great value. Just as He told the Israelites that they matter, you matter. Now listen. I know that in the culture we live in, it becomes increasingly easy to think of ourselves alone and disconnected and not mattering to anyone on the face of the earth. That if for some reason we were not to be here, our lives, uh, the lives of the people around us would not go unchanged. We all have our it's a wonderful life kind of moments. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where he just says, everything would be better if I weren't here. We've been reading in the one-year Bible, Jeremiah says the same thing. God, it'd been better if I'd never been born. Job said the same thing. God, curse the day I was born. We all have those moments. And it's easy in our society when we're assigned numbers at every turn that we're known more by our online identities than our actual beings to ask the question, Do I matter? And this commandment says that every life on the face of the earth matters. Everyone. that we're important to God. So let me tell you three unique ways you can fulfill this commandment. All right? If you had not written anything else down, write this down. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'll make it easy. All right? So write these down, three unique ways you can fulfill this commandment because I know the good way. I mean, I know the regular ways not to, to, I mean to fulfill the commandment, don't go out and shoot anybody this afternoon, all right? That's not going to be really helpful to most of you in the room because that wasn't on your agenda for the afternoon. okay? So three ways. first of all, you need to begin to pray for, not about people. Pray for, not about people. Now what do I mean? A couple of things. First of all, it's very easy in prayer circles and prayer times and sharing in Sunday school and sharing with friends and neighbors prayer requests to be praying about people. When scripture teaches us we need to pray for people. It's very easy in our political dialogue today to pray about people instead of earnestly sincerely praying for There's a passage in 1 Timothy that we've read in the last couple of weeks in our one-year Bible where Paul tells Timothy to pray for the authorities and rulers with all prayer and supplication. Now, anybody know who the ruler was at that time, most people think? Nero. remember Nero? You ever heard of Nero? Fiddled while Rome burned, right? But you know what he did with Christians? He burned them. To light the way to his palace, to light the way in the streets of Rome, he burned Christians as lamps. And this is what Paul tells Timothy. That guy that is burning us, literally, you pray for him. Now, I know in our country, we like to get on our leaders pretty good. But none of them compare to Nero. And Paul commands we pray for him. Your prayer life every day, I hope you're praying for your church. I hope you're praying for me. I hope you're praying for your family. I hope you're praying for people specifically that you know that need to come know Jesus Christ. And you need to be praying for our president and congressman. Our judges and our representatives at the state and local levels. Not about not against, but for, on a regular basis. Now, you also need to be praying for people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. The second way is not only to pray for and not about people, but to ask God to give you His desire for people. A couple of times in Scripture, He says that He desires more than anything That all men would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. According to the Joshua Project, around the world, there are 6,649 unreached people groups. There are 2.72 billion people who have little or know nothing of Jesus. The top 10 unreached people groups total 1.7 billion people. Now that's around the world. But listen to what's happened in America recently. For in 10 years span from 1990 to 2000, Christianity grew by 5 percent, which whew, there's growth there. The problem is that's about the that's about the size increase of the population. But listen to this: non-religious had 110 percent increase, Islam 109 percent increase, Buddhism 170 percent increase, Hinduism 237 percent increase. Baha'i, 200% increase. New Age, 240% increase. Sikhism, 338%. Deism, 717% increase in 10 years. And Christianity had 5%. Part of what it means to fulfill thou shalt not kill is to promote life. And the only way to do that is to give the gospel of Jesus Christ to people in need. And here's the last unique way. Do your part as God's appointed proclaimer of His message. Robert Coleman in his classic book, The Master Plan of Evangelism says, the need of the hour is for God's people to do what God's people are supposed to do. Which is to take the gospel individually to neighbors and friends, co-workers, and people around them when you first read the words, no murdering, it sounds pretty straightforward. And the truth is, it is a pretty straightforward command, but the implications are great. And so the question I have for you today is, are you fulfilling that commandment in the way that you live your life on a regular basis? Are there people in your life that you have failed in praying for Are there people in your life that need Jesus Christ as their Savior? And here's the question. If you don't know anybody that does, then you need to find people that do. Because that's our mandate. And are you willing to do whatever it takes to see them come to Christ? Most people don't think that no murdering turns into an evangelistic message. But the truth is, when you go to the heart of who God is, that is right there at His heartbeat. And I just wonder, are you doing what God has called you to do?